Episode 7 of Up From The Ashes, Bad Sci-Fi TV, Big Sci-Fi Ideas, our topic today, the sixth episode of The Star Lost, and Only Man Is Vile. From October 26th, 1973, 50 years ago, this week. Starring Keir Dulia, Robin Ward, and Gay Rowan. Guest starring Simon Oakland and Trudy Young, written by Shimon Winselberg, and directed by Ed Richardson. Hey there, I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and welcome to another episode of Up From the Ashes, a podcast about big sci-fi ideas and bad sci-fi TV. We are here to talk about The Star Lost, a little sci-fi show that could in some people's opinions, and and couldn't in other people's opinions. But we are here to talk about this little show 50 years later. And you may have noticed, if you are following us in real time, that we did not have an episode last week on October 19th. And that is because October 19th, 1973, CTV did not air a new episode of the Star Lost. Instead, they aired a Tom Jones hour-long special called The Special London Bridge Special, which was about moving London Bridge from London to Arizona. They had just opened it. And in this special, you have Tom Jones starting out in London, magically transported across the ocean to Arizona, where he meets Engelbert Humperdinck. He meets Kirk Douglas and he meets Jonathan Winters, Elliot Gould, Michael Landon, Lauren Green, the Carpenters. Karen Carpenter is possibly the most beautiful singing voice that I've ever heard in my life. And so I did watch the special. I am not making an episode about that special, but it did cause the broadcast schedule for the Star Lost to align itself closer to what NBC was doing. So... Now you have these episodes airing on Friday night on CTV in Canada and then on Saturday night on NBC in the States. There are some changes in schedule that will be coming up as well sometime soon. But for right now, we don't have to concern ourselves with that. We are talking about And Only Man is Vile from October 26th, 1973. And when I say we, I mean me. And I mean my guest host this week, Winston Crutchfield. How you doing, Winston? I'm good, Ben. You get the honor of being on this episode. And I don't mean because you get to be with me. I mean because <laughs> this episode is strangely strong for the Star Lost. And we'll get into it. But before we do, I also want to introduce just who you are. You are a publisher. You publish the Starman Saga. You also host a, a series about books called Book Talk. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about what is the Star Lost Saga and what is it that you're doing with it? I mean, the, the Starman Saga. Right? That mistake is staying in the final <laughs> edit. <laughs> the Starman Saga. We already know what the Star Lost Saga is. That is what we're going to talk about today. But what is the Starman Saga? So Starman Saga, back in uh, the late 90s, three guys got together on a Tom Swift fan fiction site and started writing fan fiction together. They had a great time doing it and said, hey, 
let's do our own original series. So they start, they planned out uh, a whole big uh, list of books and wrote the Starman saga inspired by science fiction novels of the 1960s. So it's got that 1960s aesthetic and a smidgen of that 1960s sci-fi technology approach. And I stumbled across the series in 2007, read, uh, read one of the books, I liked it, bought the rest of them for my Kindle, and promptly forgot about them until 2021. 2021, I stumbled across them on my Kindle again. Oh yeah, hey, I wanted to read these. I started reading, uh, I got into, you know, middle of book two, I'm like, you know, I, I really, really like these. Uh, I'm going to write the authors and tell them that. And I eventually uh, tracked tracked them down and wrote them and said, hey, books are really good. I really enjoy them. I want my friends and family to read these, but they're really hard to find. And uh, I'm like, I, you know, I'm a fan. I can help you fix it. And they're like, yeah, well, we're kind of done. I'm like, no, I want my friends and family to read these books. Everybody has to read these books. And uh, so we talked for a little while and they said, well, how much work do you want to do? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it turns out I wanted to do quite a lot of work on it. So um, we get that we got together. I did a line edit on the entire series, book by book, and uh, putting everything back out with new covers and new formats, modern uh, formatting to make them, uh, you know, make them easy to find and easy to read on your favorite device. The story itself involves a group of elite astronauts. These uh, elite astronauts are called Starmen. It starts with thwarting a group of pirates who are taking over Mars, and it leads to a confrontation with an alien menace from the heart of the galaxy. And it's that, uh, it's that go get them sci-fi, 60s sci-fi action. Nice. The, the, one of the taglines is the future the way it used to be. And you're publishing other things, too. The one led to the other, right? I, uh, I did a couple of books way back in 2009, and I really loved it, but I was never in a position to, to do it for reals, <laughs> as it were. And then the Starman saga came along. I get those moving, and my sister's father-in-law writes a, a devotional for his church on a regular basis. And he was having some trouble getting them formatted. You know, I was working with him, fixing his formatting, getting stuff done. And I said, Hey, Peter, do you know anybody who likes sci-fi? I got these books I want to promote. And he says, well, you know, my mother used to write sci-fi novels. I talked about it. I tracked down some of her books and I really liked them. Uh, so I called my brother-in-law. I said, Hey, did, did you know your grandma Dee used to write sci-fi? And he says, she did what? <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we did the provenance on it to make sure that the, the family's still in the copyrights, and uh, I'm putting those back out. So I've got sci-fi inspired by the '60s and the Starman saga, and sci-fi actually written in the '60s by Diane Detzer is her name. So I want to ask you a couple questions before we jump into things. First is before I invited you to come on the podcast, what was your awareness and experience with the Star Lost? Well, I thought it was zero. I thought it was zero. Okay. I, I'm like, Star Lost? I've never heard of this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Canadian TV from the 70s? Okay. I'm, you know, I'm in. Sure. Ben vouches for it. That's good enough for me. And then, uh, you know, the, the first opening scroll comes on and I go, I know that ship. I know that ship. 
I had uh, seen this series because it used to air uh, on you know, cable or UHF or wh- wherever it was airing uh, in the same uh-huh. block as Star Trek and then the rotating shows after that. Um, and, and I was only allowed to watch them at my granny's house. So we would <laughs> we would watch MASH because she loved MASH. And we uh-huh. watched Star Trek because I love Star Trek. And then there was another one of a rotating series of sci-fi shows that came on after that, whatever was syndication, Battlestar Galactica or Buck Rogers. And it turns out the star lost. Um, and then of course, after uh, the second sci-fi come on, then it was time for Monday night wrestling. So I huh. recognized the ship, but the sh- that's the only thing of, I remember of the show. Then the next question is, what kind of homework did you do? Are you getting a passing grade for just watching this episode and only man is vile? <laughs> Where did you get extra credit by going back and watching the pilot? Where do you land on the homework spectrum? So I will watch the entire series, uh, but I have not, I haven't gone that far. I did watch the episode we're going to talk about and I did go back and I watched the pilot episode first. And then after uh, both of, after I watched pilot episode and then the one we're on today, only man is vile. Watched those two, and then I went back and watched the documentary that's on the uh, the channel as well. The YouTube channel, right? Uh, no, there's a Roku channel. Oh, the you that's still going? Yes, the Roku channel. I have even talked about that. I thought that was gone. I thought that was dead. That's where I watched it. It's I I went to my thing. I hit search Star Lost, and it comes up. Bam! There's a Roku channel dedicated just solely to the Star Lost. I'm like. Okay, maybe this is a bigger cult following than I thought. (laughs) I don't know who put it out there. I don't know anything about it other than a few years ago, I saw some sort of, I don't know if it was a Facebook post or if it was just showing up on my search, you know, because I'd search for this kind of stuff. But did you know there's a Roku channel devoted just to the Star Lost? I had no clue that it was still around. That is fascinating. Well, there you go. It's it's still around. It's it's monetized, so I expect it's uh it's not going anywhere. The documentary that you watch then, is it the the short that they did to sell the show? Yes. Or was it something else? No, it was it was it was clearly a pitch video. Well, <laughs> let's talk about our episode then. <laughs> yes, let's. <laughs> I, I, there's a part of me that almost wanted to go into the credits before we talk about the actual episode, because I think I'm going to, Okay. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I, I think that's fair. Typically we talk about the episode first, but let's talk about the people who involved in this. So we have one of the guest stars here is Simon Oakland and Simon Oakland plays Dr. Asgard, who is a, a mad scientist. This guy, you've seen him before. Oh, you, you've seen it before. You may not know you've seen him before, but if you watch TV in the seventies or eighties and then reruns in the eighties of TV from the seventies and sixties, oh, yes. you you've seen him. Yeah. He he's been in a ton of stuff. Rockford files, Charlie's angels, Vegas, black sheep squadron. It was all I could do every time he came on to keep from hollering. <laughs> he was, he was the publisher. Uh, he was a uh, Vin- Tony Vincenzo. He was also on, um, uh, Quincy for four episodes yeah. did some episodes of chips, uh, but of note, and I don't know, you probably haven't listened to many episodes to know that I do this every episode. 
I don't know if you know what The Littlest Hobo is, but he's been on The Littlest Hobo, which is something that, because this is Canadian TV, a lot of the actors who are part of this have been in this Canadian TV show called The Littlest Hobo, and he is no exception, which means we have yet another episode with a connection to The Littlest Hobo. He also was on Gentle Ben, um, Mission Impossible, Combat, Gunsmoke. I mean, just tons and tons and tons of things and so very very recognizable actor known for playing tough guys and heavies and in this that's no exception um he's technically the heavy i I don't know how heavy he plays it but he is is technically the heavy uh then we do have trudy young and trudy young played letha not lisa but Letha. letha and she also Littlest hobo. <laughs> so just <laughs> of course. throwing it out there. But another Canadian show about a dog that she was on is called George. George is basically Beethoven before Beethoven. It's just this big, giant dog. And this is one that I get the theme song stuck in my head every once in a while. If I start thinking about this show, he's lovable, George. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, she's so she's in two Canadian dog shows. And then there is... Dr. Tabor, and I don't know how to say her name. It's Irina, probably, maybe Irina, um, Irina Majeska, I'm going to go with. And she also had somewhat of a career. She was in um, a lot of Canadian shows. She was also in a, a dog show, uh, a TV movie anyway, The Courage of Kavik, the wolf dog, which I've never heard of, but it's just keeping the theme <laughs> with the dogs. Then I really want us to talk a little bit about the director ed richardson we've talked about him before he directed four episodes of the star lost oh and we haven't talked about him before this is the first one he directed of the star lost i have talked about him before because i record out of order so i I have talked about him before but um he went on to be a producer then of some other things including the littlest hobo well of course he did And we'll talk about him in two episodes with Carrie Neitz. But the writer, I wanted to talk about the credits first because of the writer, Shimon Winselberg. And I already mentioned that And Only Man is Vile as a title for the episode sounds very Star Trek uh, as far as, you know, as sharp as a serpent's tooth and, and that kind of thing. Titles that reference other things from literature and that. And so the title here, it's referencing a poem. And Devin himself says, you know, it's an ancient poem, which I don't know how he knew <laughs> that it was an ancient poem. <laughs> but he references that the what the obelisk that names the 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 dome that they're in, um, he he reads a part of it, or they read a part of it, and he he continues the poem on. Uh, and we'll talk about it when we get to it. But what I didn't know when I made that note in my notes was that this guy had actually written two episodes of Star Trek, and so. I start looking through his two episodes of Star Trek. One was Dagger of the Mind, and the other was the Galileo 7. And then as you start looking more at his credits, there is a ton of stuff that I was just really excited to see. I've seen episodes that he's written without knowing that he had written those episodes. He wrote for Logan's Run, the TV series, which is a candidate for if we did a season two of Up From the Ashes. I don't know. I have other ideas too. I don't necessarily want to go through an entire series again, but if I were to, that's a candidate. Another candidate he wrote for 
Planet of the Apes, the series. Oh, yeah. Another candidate, Man from Atlantis, <laughs> the series. He wrote for that as well. And he wrote for Mannix. He wrote for The Immortal, which is another traveling do-gooder show about a guy who is on the run from people who want his blood because he's immortal and they want the secret of that. Uh, he wrote for The Wild Wild West, which is another just favorite show from my childhood. Three shows that for Irwin Allen, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, he wrote one episode of. Lost in Space, he did seven episodes. And then The Time Tunnel, he wrote the pilot episode for that. Not, not just any seven episodes of Lost in Space. He did the entire uh, original, the entire oh. first arc of that series. So he did seven episodes, but it looks like he did the original uh, pilot. And then the second pilot where they, I think, added in um, <laughs> Dr. Smith. He was a foundational guy with that show and then just tons and tons and tons of uh detective shows and and especially westerns he had a he had a, a long run there on have gun will travel which uh i find especially fascinating and you know for me it was saturday westerns was saturday okay <laughs> and it was it was have gun will travel and uh, Maverick and Wild Wild West, and they, they aired them all three back to back. It was awesome. <laughs> but you've taken a look as well to see a little bit about this guy. And I think you dug up some pretty inf interesting information uh, about just who he was and kind of what he did and, and how he did it. Yeah, looking into uh, looking at his credits, noticing that they were all over the place. Uh, I, I looked into him a little bit more. Turns out that uh, Shyman was you know he was he was a studio writer he didn't work for any one studio but he was you know he was on the short list of uh guys they would call whenever they needed a one-off script and they needed it fast uh he wasn't heavily involved with any one show for uh, for a long period of time uh from what i can tell also i i thought uh, it was really interesting he was a practicing orthodox jew and uh took a role in mentoring other Jewish people in the industry in uh, hmm. in their practice and in being Jewish in the entertainment industry. Uh, that was apparently a, a very important uh, an important thing to him. Probably the the most interesting thing I, I found, given the similar subject matter of a lot of his uh, scripts, especially a lot of his sci-fi scripts. Uh, you know, which which involve this this heavily psychological premise where people are wrestling with uh, issues of ethics or where they are wrestling with issues of behavior under stress and uh, you know man's you know man's innate nature. His family left Germany uh, just prior to uh, the rise of the Nazi Party when it came to the U.S. and he served in the U.S. Army uh, as a member of the intelligence corps. Hmm. Um, an experience which he uh, later used as the foundation for a Broadway play called Kataki, K-A-T-A-K-I, which apparently is still being produced. Hmm. Um, and uh, I thought that was really interesting. All right, what's, what's this Kataki? So Kataki and... Stop me when you've heard this before. Okay. <laughs> Kataki right, involves an American airman who uh, crash lands on a deserted island in the Philippines, only to find that the only other survivor there is a Japanese airman. 
and the only weapon they have between them is a knife. And of course, they have to learn to survive together until one or another of them can get rescued. Again, uh, uh, an extension of of the theme that we see in a lot of his uh, a lot of his other stuff. What causes people to behave the way they do? I just uh, I, I found that really really fascinating. I'm curious because I I mean I I have heard and seen that setup before. Um, I mean yeah, it was it was in um, one of the Godzilla movies recently, one of the American Godzilla movies, where it started out with. A Japanese soldier and an American soldier on the island together. Yep. But then King Kong. Oh uh, yeah, it was King Kong. Yeah, probably most famously in uh, Enemy, Enemy Mine. Mine. Yeah, that's what I was looking to see, like to see if the book, the Enemy Mine, the movie was based on, if they had any, um, <laughs> any connection to like like being inspired by that. But I don't. I, don't I, see I couldn't find any. I and I couldn't find anything in the uh, second book, which was a novelization of the movie, which was inspired by the first book. <laughs> You gotta love that. You're talking about the, I, the the morals and things like that. Recently, I did rewatch uh, Galileo Seven, the episode of Star Trek that he yeah. wrote, and that is a fascinating story because it's about um, Kirk. Or not Kirk. Kirk is in at the Enterprise. He is searching for the Galileo shuttle shuttlecraft, which has crashed, and Spock right. and McCoy are both on the shuttlecraft. And there's just a lot of just wonderful give and take there that um, I really did not notice before when I watched it uh, before. And I don't know how much of it was just because I was young and how much of it as I was older watching that episode. But I also remember skipping that episode sometimes because it just had those monsters in it that just looked really unconvincing. <laughs> and when 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 you're that age. You uh, you watch that episode and they're just sitting in the planet talking uh-huh. and they're not shooting their phasers and they're not flying the spacecraft around and and they're getting on, killed guys. like they're, <laughs> they're getting picked off one by one and Spock's like why aren't you just doing things the way I say we should do them which is the logical way to do things and they're stopping to say no we've ha- we have to have emotional reactions to this so that we can function and we you have to let us react to the death of our comrades to the death of our friends and um. And then Spock has a, a fairly nice story arc in in that episode, a character arc in that episode. No, he does. He has to grow, yeah. which is which is fantastic. And that's why, as I said earlier, you came on this episode of the Star Lost. This is, in my opinion, one of the strongest scripts that we've gotten. It is not perfect. It is not acted perfectly. <laughs> I, I think I mentioned this already, but you know, this is kind of an A. I'd give this an A as a grade for the Star Lost, but if I'm grading it in a broader class, it includes Star Trek, Next Generation, Stargate, Babylon 5. This is not an A science fiction script. It's maybe C, C plus. It's passing grade. But as far as the Star Lost goes, this is one of the tops. So what do you say we talk about the episode? Let's do that. And let's, let's jump into it. I mean, that's what we're here for. So... Yeah, and Only Man is Vile starts with our trio of heroes, Garth, Devin, and Rachel, making their way down the halls of the ship as they do, finding themselves in the next dome, which is what's supposed to be happening every episode. And so it's good to see that, that <laughs> Shyman is is saying to himself, I'm going to do what the story engine tells me to do. I'm going to have them go and find a dome. The dome they find themselves in is a virtual Eden and when I say virtual Eden, I mean, it's actually named New Eden. <laughs> and uh, they find a sign, an obelisk that says New Eden, 
Leisure Village. Population, 1,000. And then on the side of that, it says, where every prospect pleases. And then that's where Devin completes the couplet, and only man is vile, which comes from a poem from the 1800s that is uh, literally about how beautiful the earth is all around the world, but everywhere you go, man is vile. Is that what the uh, the poem says? Because that uh, particular couplet ends with a question mark, and it's the only question mark in the poem. If I were doing an interpretive reading on that, I would not say that only man is vile is a statement, but uh, that's, I mean, that's a question that the poet is asking. How can you say that only man is vile when all of God's other creation is so good? It seems to me that the what the poet is saying is that uh, man is, in fact, not vile, but is, in fact, created in the image of God to be redeemed, which is how the, uh, you know, to be redeemed, to enjoy and worship God forever, which is how the poem ends. And I would argue that we're probably saying the same thing in different ways, but that it's saying man is <laughs> man is vile, but needs salvation. And and that's where the poem is saying man is vile, but but salvation, oh salvation, the joyful sound proclaim like salvation is available. But man, you, we we could read the poem. <laughs> it's written by <laughs> Bishop Reginald Heber. From Greenland's Icy Mountains is the name of the poem. From Greenland's Icy Mountains, from India's Coral Strand, where Africa's sunny fountains roll down their golden sand. From many an ancient river, from many a palmy plain, they call us to deliver their land from error's chain. What though the spicy breezes blow soft o'er Clayon's isle, though every prospect pleases and only man is vile... In vain, with lavish kindness, the gifts of God are strown. The heathen, in his blindness, rose down to wood and stone. Can we, whose souls are lighted with wisdom from on high, can we to men be knighted, the lamp of life deny? Salvation, oh salvation, the joyful sound proclaim, till each remotest nation has learned Messiah's name. Waft, waft ye winds his story, and you ye waters roll, till like a sea of glory it spreads from pole to pole, till o'er our ransom nature the lamb for sinners slain, redeemer, king, creator, in bliss returns to reign. I feel like both interpretations fit the same idea of what he's saying here. Um, who's right, who's wrong? Only Reginald Heber knows. <laughs> but you know what? The, the beauty of poetry, like uh, the beauty of good sci-fi, is that it is meant to be discussed. It's true. It's very true. The point here is, this is Eden. This is a leisure village. And they can't figure out exactly what it is because they don't know what it is because there's nobody there to tell them anything other than this obelisk. Uh, they wonder if it could be just, is this where people come for vacation, for leisure, for a break, for a rest? Or is it you know, a place where people just live? And as they're looking around, they find food. They find food that's laid out for a meal, but still fresh. There's comfortable furniture. And by comfortable, I mean, it is the egg crates, foam, soundproofing, <laughs> mattress cover stuff. Burst. Now, it's <laughs> not super, super comfortable in space age. Yep, yep. Not space as prevalent age. as in uh, Children of Methuselah, where it was just kind of all over everything. <laughs> but it is there. And so this is obviously New Eden. 
I mean, they've got this comfortable furniture. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> the the name New Eden and uh, the 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 reference to the poem. I look at that, and uh, that's where I see the remnants of of Harlan Ellison's uh, script Bible in there, because Ellison loved to do that. You know, call on these these great references to literature and theology and, and everything else. And mythology and for this show. The, the intention for this show was every episode was going to have a title that referred to some form of mythology. Children of Methuselah, ah. uh, Ashes of uh, no, Phoenix Without Ashes. Um, this title doesn't feel like him because it's from the poem, but you're, you know, the New Eden, you, you could be right about Certainly. that. You could be. It, I mean, there's no way of knowing. It just, it feels to me like, a, like a, an Ellisonism, <laughs> Harlanism, <laughs> Harlanism. I, I think you could go with, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like Harlanism because he would, he would interject these things, and then because so much of his work was uh, predicated on uh, transgressive treatment mm -hmm. of otherwise. Uh, untouchable subject matter, wh whether it was religion or culture or bodily functions in stories that I, I don't want to talk about. I mean, he, he loved to do that, bring something up and then twist it and turn it around. They're looking around, they're investigating, they are examining, they are exploring, they find nothing until Garth finally founds a woman who seems to be helpless. She's scared. She can't talk. Uh, and he helps her, takes her to the others, and they discuss, you know, what can we, what do we do with her? Uh, we don't know what happened here. We don't know why everyone left. We can't leave her here. We can't take her with us. And they're trying to figure out what happened, that she's so scared and that there's no one else here. And again, they don't see anyone else, but someone sees them. They are being watched this entire time by Dr. Tabor, Dr. Diana Tabor. Um who signs of the times she is a doctor, sure. but Dr. Asgard, her, her partner, so to speak in, in this, this experiment that they're doing calls her Diana all the time. She calls him Dr. Asgard every time, but he calls her by her first name. And it's like, she earned that. Huh. She earned I, that I title. That. Well, I only noticed it because I was trying to remember her name. And he keeps calling her Diana. And I was uh -huh. like, wait a minute. I want to be able to write her name down. Remember, Diana was a, a Greek goddess, wasn't she? Let's see. She was. Diana and Artemis, are they the same? Yes. Yeah. So the goddess of the hunt. Patroness of countryside and nature, children, childbirth, equated with the Greek goddess Artemis. And they have Dr. Asgard, who Asgard is, of course, the, the home of the, the Norse, right. Norse gods. And, and you get an impression from them that they're watching from on high. You know, they, they're, they're doing everything in their little yeah, every room. camera angles from that yeah. uh, superior position, yep. isn't it? And so they're sitting, looking at a screen, you know, like watching television, but so they're looking vertically, but then the, the image they're looking at is there's kind of a horizontal image to it. Well, that's a very specific, uh, purposeful language too, isn't it? Because it was very common, uh, when they have this, this kind of setup, somebody watching somebody else they're being fed the same image that we as the viewers are being fed. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they, they took some pains to shoot different footage for that. I, I thought that was very interesting. 
So these two have a bet, and it's basically about do we have the children? I don't know what children they're talking about. I don't know who that they're going to be raising. They don't get into the details there. But do they raise their children weak with morality? Or do they raise their children with no morality at all so they can be strong? Asgard says, if I can turn them into strangers, each concerned only with their own survival, what will you then say about the nobility of human nature, about the myth of man created in some divine image? So there is a lot at stake here, and it's not just the raising of the youth, but it's also a um, moral stance that these two people have taken. And Garth, Devin, and Rachel... They're going to determine the outcome of this long-standing, apparently, rivalry between these two these two scientists. So this is where we cut to commercial break, and um, <laughs> at, at, the one thing I have noticed is the stakes of the cliffhanger as you go into the commercial breaks on the Star Lost aren't necessarily high stakes yet because we don't even really know exactly what's going on. Yeah. So what do you think about first act here? Uh, what are you thinking as they're coming across because you've only seen the pilot episode right i did watch the pilot episode before this but none of the others um i've gone back and and watched uh, more since but i mean just oh my gosh it's um there's there's so much for me to get past (laughs) (laughs) to to kind of get at what's going on and uh, just kind of from a story perspective, they've raised a bunch of questions and they've introduced the villains. They introduced the antagonist, but they haven't done anything else. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I'm left with I'm left with nothing to evaluate yet. We have a lot of setup, but uh, no execution yet. Yeah. And we're going to get more setup. We come back from the commercial. And we get more exposition as Asgard and and Tabor are kind of going back and forth a little bit. He wants to breed people to be able to survive on a harsh planet because they don't know where the Ark is going, what planet the Ark is going to. And one nice thing here is you get the impression that these two people have lived in natural human life span. They are not 500 years old like we get in some of these other episodes. Um, <laughs> so they're just carrying on the mission of the dome that was set for them by their, their ancestors, but we don't get anything more than just them being scientists. We, we don't know anything about their background. We don't know anything about the children that they're talking about raising. All we know is they have this back and forth and they're watching these three and they also have uh, a little helper who's going to help them along with their, their things here. But We get more exposition. He talks about um, he wants to program every bit of softness out of the children that are going to live on this planet. And the dome was there to help the people of the Ark to be able to, I guess, study things. But Tabor points out it was not to prove your theories of human behavior. And then this is where she says, I believe in love and trust. And I believe that these three will uphold my ideals. And he says, if I win, we'll raise the children with no hint of warmth and softness. And if she wins, they'll teach love and trust and friendship. Right. So the purpose of a dome is it's an educational institute. They, uh, they bring that up a couple of times and that's why they have the different uh, patch on their uniform with the four hexagons on it. 
So this is a school. This, okay. this, this is right. what it's meant to, yeah. And they are, I guess they are battling to determine the curriculum. We don't see any children though. We hear we don't. about children and we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there, but we do hear about children in this dome, but we never see any and we never see any teachers or anything like that. Like these two, I mean, it's been 500 years, whatever has happened to the school after the disaster, uh, these two maybe came out of that educational background and maybe were the last graduating class. I don't know. If this is a school, who is it teaching? This leisure village, uh, clearly, yeah, I... <laughs> you know, there's there's no one here. Is this meant to teach the people of the other domes? If so, why are the other domes isolated? Maybe they're going to explain that to me in this episode. These two people are clearly representative of the management of the ship. So uh, obviously somebody is still running the ship because they talk about like, they talk like they know what's going on. These guys have all the answers. They don't know about the disaster, but they do know about the mission of the Ark. Like they, they know about their background of they're going somewhere, but you never get any impression from them that they actually know what's been going on outside of their dome. Well, they have to they have to do something because if they are educating just the people of this one dome, then you know that we're going to find. I would assume we would find a situation much more like uh, the uh, the the village that our our three heroes are from. You know, something that that has an entrenched education system and an entrenched structure. Instead. You know, we, we have nothing. We just have two people who apparently are determined to educate somebody, but there's nobody here to educate. So I, I have a lot of questions at this point. Yeah, I, I, I like your, your optimism as you're watching. Oh, this is going to be explained to me. <laughs> this is going to be explained to me in my episode. This is <laughs> no, right. no, no, it's not. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, these are these are answers that we just don't get. No. Um, well, that uh, the, the show is built around an unsustainable premise question. I mean, you can't just experiment upon generation after generation after generation uh, for years and years and years and still have viable sociological experimentation. It, it doesn't work, uh, which Ben Bova would have pointed out to them. And they <sighs> would have ignored <laughs> yeah yeah all right so back to our heroes rachel's left behind with the girl letha when the boys go to find some more of the survivors and letha gives her a deadly weapon and tells her to protect herself against her friends is this Chekhov's gun are we going to see this we we see it get put into rachel's hand is it going to get used later well one would think they they say letha and in the credits her name is lethe l-e-t-h-e I mean, which is uh, a not too oblique reference to the River Styx, you know, Leith, water lethe, forgetfulness or oblivion. I th they're, they're going for something there. That, that's another little Harlanism naming people after uh, mythological. And she is clearly actually called out uh, as the snake in the garden. She is. Dr. Asgard literally says, ah, our snake in the garden of Eden. She gives a gun to Rachel and says, you need to protect yourself against your friends. And she's starting to sow the seeds of doubt in that Trio, uh, trio. Devin, meanwhile, goes to try to interface with the computer in this dome, and nothing happens. And Letha comes to him 
and starts talking to him and he knows her name, but <laughs> he wasn't there when she revealed her name. But anyway, and she is all of a sudden very functional yep. and he doesn't uh, question that at all. The, the la- no, the, the last bit of it wasn't just that she gave uh, Rachel the gun. But the delivery when she did it, she she's fearful, she's afraid, she de- demonstrates the guns here. Protect yourself against who? And she's she's trembling. She says, "Your friends." Yeah. She is not just functional, but confident when she comes to Devon, and she is clear. And she questions his search for knowledge, and she drops the hint that Rachel and Garth love each other, and that he's in danger from them. But he doesn't take the gun from her. She offers him a gun as well. And he doesn't take it from her. Actually, he, right. he takes it, but then he gives it back to her. And he's not going to have any of this. I mean, he is, he's Captain Kirk. You know, he, he's above this right. all, you know. Uh, and he even questions why she has that and what she is doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Garth gets a similar pitch from her about not being able to trust his friends. And then it gets into this whole, you like me, don't you? Well, sure. Yeah, I do. What if Devin <laughs> tried to steal me from you? You know, what would you do then? Uh, that's not going to happen. Well, what if it did? What if Rachel got killed? <laughs> then, and it's like, she's, she's going in deep with the hypotheticals to get to the point where, yeah, you, you would kill him to, to, you know, protect me. Right. Be with me. And right. gives him a gun and, and he takes it from her. Um, but she says that she got it from Devin and he gave it to her to use on Garth. So he, Devin was trying to get Letha to kill Garth with this gun, but she's going to give it to him instead. Right. So this is where Dr. Asgard, he, he calls her the snake in the Garden of Eden. They talk about how Devin is not very suggestible. And Asgard says, man is a monster. And that's how the youth must be raised to. I love this <laughs> turn of phrase to accept the skull beneath the skin, the beast within themselves. And get them to not deny it or paper over it as the arts and religion have so pathetically tried to do as they go along the cracks of mistrust are to be seen with our trio <laughs> and you get a very soap opera look from rachel as she's just staring away from garth as he sits down next to next to letha and Devin finds the other inhabitants of the dome and they bonk bonk him on the head very quickly and this is where I get the the commercial break is they hit him on the head. He's out. He's out. Yep. He's done. <laughs> so, yeah. We're Devin. Here's the thing. And this kind of gets into a little bit of what we might talk, might have talked about after the episode, but I kind of want to bring it up here. And that's our, our godlike scientists who are just observing from on high. That feels like such a trope. But I can't remember for the life of me, like I, I'm, I'm positive. I, I must have seen something like this in, in a Twilight Zone episode or in an Outer Limits episode. Um, the test of humanity, I, I can name a few different places where, you know, the, the unwitting test of humanity comes up uh, or the witting test of humanity even. But like right. Q with uh, um, Encounter at Farpoint and then with All Good Things at the end of the season of Next Generation where our series where he's been testing them all along to see if humanity is worthy and there's big stakes there. But also I can't remember the name of the episode, but when Wesley is given the Kobayashi Maru style test where they're taking a written exam 
and for him to go into the academy and there's an emergency and he has to make a choice between you know who is he going to help rescue to get out of the room that's going to you know go up in flames or whatever and and then when everything's done turns out they were all acting and you know they're there, there, there's a test there, but right. I, yeah, it, it's all over the place and it. Well, I'm surprised you don't uh, trot out the menagerie. Well, yeah, that's another one. And, and, you know, another one is, um, arena, the, the episode arena from the original series where yeah, okay. they are, um, Kirk and, and the Gorn are put on the planet. They have to fight each other and there's aliens who are, um, observing everything. And it's a test to see like, who deserves what? Um, they add up the the feature adaptation of the box, which was a Twilight Zone episode in the eighties, but is also a short story. Richard, I, Matheson I was going to say, is it Richard Matheson? But the feature film that they did, where they're given a box, this, this couple is given a box. If yep. they press the button, they'll get millions of dollars, but someone they don't know is going to die, and. Mm-hmm. In the feature film, they add a little element of there are aliens who are determining if humanity is worthy to exist, you know. And so I've seen this kind of thing before. I just I wish I could put my finger on uh, the the one Twilight Zone that that came to me was the monsters are due on Maple Street, which um, has aliens kind of observing what's going on with, with the people on Maple street. But then when they did a remake of that episode, I want to say it's not the most recent, but it was another, it was the force Whitaker hosted twilight <laughs> zone where right. they did a remake of the episode and was actually, um, so this is after nine 11, but it was actually like the, right. the, 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 the American government, who was observing what happens in this neighborhood when they think there's an alien invasion and how quickly do they turn against each other? And, and again, you have them having conversation about it back and forth as they're watching the test play out. So that's the only twilight zone I could think of. I'm, I'm just sure that there's more. <laughs> so, Oh, listeners, if you can think of some studio Avery at gmail.com, send us an email and, and let us know. Yeah. It, it's as a trope. It's, it's all over the place. There is one more place where this trope is found in the Bible. Okay. In Job. And God says to Satan, have you considered Job? And Satan's like, he only worships you because you gave him good things. If you take those things away. And and so the whole book of Job becomes this kind of a test. Um, although the majority of the book of Job is poetic literature as the people are having a conversation about the fallout for Job as he loses everything, including his health. Right. And... And it's a, it's a test to reveal Job's character. Yeah. And that is something that uh, I think Harlan Ellison would be reluctant to put in a story. But I think Simon Winchell would, uh, I mean, would go for that. I mean, it's, it's right in keeping with uh, his Orthodox Jewish upbringing. Yeah. So Garth, he likes things. He's happy. He's got a woman oh, yeah. by his side. He, he's got a swanky leather peace sign bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel isn't so sure about things. Devin is in chains and he's being interrogated by the people who have run away from the leisure village and they ran from invaders who could not be stopped. They ran from invaders who have no pain and have no blood and they never saw them, but they're scared of them because they heard of them. Scared. You know, who told them about these invaders was, was Letha. She, Letha. she told them about them. 
And so this is where I, uh. the the villagers were also part of this this whole humanity test between Tabor and, and Asgard. How? We don't exactly know. Why? We don't exactly know. What's the timeline? Who knows? Who knows? Well, I got the feeling that uh, the uh, the villagers were the result of the last set of tests. They are. Yeah, for sure. So that was- That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of the feeling I got. And uh I noticed that immediately when they devolve into uh fear and barbarism, they they quit being able to use correct grammar. Hmm. Which uh <laughs> you know, because yeah, they they don't speak in complete sentences anymore. They don't use articles. <laughs> they don't. Oh, goodness gracious. So and they don't take Letha along because Devin asks, he says, why didn't you take Letha with you when you ran? She was weak. She was weak. And each of us already had a child. Uh-huh. Just, just one. You'll need one. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, again, it's kind of fascinating, but at the same time, it's like these little breadcrumbs of ideas that don't lead anywhere and that and it's we have an unsustainable situation here absolutely yeah you can't maintain your population hiding in uh hiding behind the the stone columns or the metal columns in fear of an unknown invader that has stolen all of your articles Uh, (laughs) you you can't do it even if you have one child each (laughs) the population is not sustainable if you were to novelize this, which is something we've talked about before, but if you were to novelize this, you would want to fill in the details of like, okay, so where does their food come from and where does, you know, this and that, and, and how has this sustained itself? The impression that I get, and this is me helping the story is you have two sure. tiers of classes of people. You have the scientists who are there to determine the course of how the children are going to be raised or whatever, but they're running experiments of human nature. And then you have the people who live in the leisure village who maybe don't realize, but they are being experimented on. And maybe Letha is one that they took from an early age and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to use you and you're going to be a part of what we're doing. Yeah, I definitely got the impression that she was one of a class of people that is from the educational Institute, not one of the, uh, the villagers per se. So the villagers decide that what they've heard about the invaders is wrong because Devon is bleeding. Not that the invaders don't exist, just that the invaders can possibly bleed and possibly die because Devin is obviously one of the invaders. And so they're going to prove that the invaders can die by killing Devin, which might give them courage to be able to take a stand. Meanwhile, Letha actually reveals to Rachel that she's part of an experiment and it's just about done. (laughs) And then Garth comes along, misses out on that whole part of the conversation, but she shows Garth. Yeah. Yeah. She shows Garth and Rachel an image of Devin. What he's saying is, is edited or at least, caught at just the right moment to make it look like he would betray his friends because he says, I will help you find the invaders and help you take care of them. And then she turns it off before Devin can continue to say who the invader actually is because he suspects it's Letha. Garth now believes Devin is the enemy. Rachel does not believe Devin is the enemy, but they're both going to go look for Devin because Garth wants to kill him and Rachel wants to find him. 
And this is where we have a commercial break. The commercial break actually comes uh, from the conversation between Asgard yes. and, uh, and Tabor, where he says, are you sure you want to continue this? We can stop it now. If you admit that I'm going to win. And she says, no, we're going to continue. And he says to the last drop of blood. And she says to the to last, the last drop, drop, of drop of blood. Again, there's some good lines here. Oh, it's, it's such good uh, scripting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's that same kind of uh, dialogue that we get again in in Dagger of the Mind. In a good Star Trek in, episode, uh, yeah. Especially in Dagger of the Mind, where you know where they're having some of these exact same uh, exact same uh, conversations. When do you want to quit? Do you want to quit? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's 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 Simon Winchell right there. No <laughs> doubt about it. So after our commercial break, Letha actually goes and finds Devin first and talks to him, tries to convince him that his friends are not his friends because they aren't helping him. The villagers have this ray gun they're going to use <laughs> to shoot yes. Devin. And Garth and Rachel are like, oh, what do we do? And they 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 peek around metal <laughs> columns or whatever. And, and what do we do? And Garth's like, ah, let's leave him to his fate. And Rachel stays. And I'm thinking, oh. She is going to use her gun and she is She's going to rescue got a him. Gun. She only she doesn't have the gun because she gave it back to Letha before they ran uh, looking for death. Oh, okay. That explains why. So she I missed doesn't that little have detail. The gun yeah. She throws it in the planter or, or <laughs> whatever it is. So Rachel stays and hides and watches. Garth goes back to Letha. He, he says, I only want what's good for me. I want what, what I can get right. and maybe what's good for her too. Cause I like her and, uh, and she can be my woman. Yeah. And, and that's when Rachel says, you don't want a woman. You want a lap dog. And aren't we your friends? He says, there are no friends, not in this world. And you know, I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, I know what's going on here. Garth's going to, uh, he's going to get, uh, he's going to trip up Letha. He's going <laughs> to uh, play into their, He's going to play into their uh, things and free them, you know, get the invaders to show them what's going on or get the, the villagers to show them what's going on. He's going to expose it and he's going to free everybody and they're going to team up. Nope. And, yeah, Garth, nope. go get them. <laughs> nope. Now we do get, well, we'll talk about Garth in a minute, but oh, here's what's happening. He is literally going to abandon Rachel and Devin right now. He is going he back is to be with funny. Letha. Letha is talking to uh, Asgard and, and Tabor through the camera. And she's saying, I feel uneasy about this. I feel a sadness. I feel a melancholy. And Garth overhears her when he, when Asgard is like, no, 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 this isn't good. This, this isn't good. Your, your, your assignment is terminated. You, you need to come back here and get programmed, get reprogrammed. And he hears the assignment is terminated. And that's when he realizes, Oh, I have made a horrible mistake. <laughs> And, um, Dang it! <laughs> in the meantime, uh, Devin is actually trying to convince the villagers that no, oh, we can. I can prove, you know, uh, that there is kindness and goodness in the world. A mother, I love this little line too. A mother throws the ch a ch her child into the air and he laughs. Why? Because he has trust. He knows his mom is going to catch him. And the, the villagers are like, well, then prove to us that a man can, man can live together in peace with each other. He looks at his chains. He's like, I can't even convince you that I am a man. And it's this nice yeah. little moment. But Garth realizes he's a fool. He runs to help Devin and he runs full bore, 
gets there. Rachel's still watching, still waiting. They still have not activated their gun. Uh, but Garth goes and confronts the villagers, and this is where he cuts himself, you know, to prove that he's mortal. And then he stands in between Devin right. and the gun and says, Okay, if this doesn't convince you, then kill me instead of him. And that convinces them because he offered himself in place of his friend. And this is where the, one of the leaders of the village says, I ask you for proof that man can learn uh, to place their lives in another's hands. And I thank you for having proved it. And Asgard loses his bet, tries to make excuses for the unknown factors. But Dr. Tabor says, no, the unknown factor was three people who were just very human. And that's where we end our episode. It, it only worked because I think because Devin had told them beforehand that, uh, you know, people would be willing to, you know, trade their lives mm-hmm. for each other, uh, which, which is the only reason that uh, I was able to, to, to buy that, uh, to buy that ending at all. <laughs> Diana's uh, very human thing. It, um, I was surprised that she didn't call back to her first uh, her first statement about them, which is that they have had ethical programming. Yes, yeah, because that's what she should have said. Uh, she says, "No, this is this is the response of people with ethical programming." Because um, yeah, she she mentions also that they were childhood friends, mm-hmm. and so they have the yeah. friendship bond, and they have the ethical programming from from cypress corners i always want to say cypress hill but it's not it's cypress corners um keep going i'm gonna start seeing green acres <laughs> so yeah it i i like it it's not perfect if this was a star trek episode it would be in you know that sea level range of star trek episodes where it's not spock's brain but it's not sitting on the edge of forever <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah. Any other thoughts before we kind of talk about some of our uh, wrap ups, any notes that you want to mention? I've got a few notes here. Oh, gosh. Um, For scientists, these guys don't have a very good scientific method. Um, There's only two of them left, you know, so whoever was there before them might not have. I mean, they just lost the scientific Uh, method over the last 500 years is how it happened. I I suppose so. (laughs) The, uh, the thing that, that, stood out to me time and time again about the villagers is that they are not behaving rationally uh, and they are not behaving in a sustainable way. And for, for a community to exist, you have to have rationality and sustainability. You have to have it. Uh, otherwise the, the community falls apart. It can't function. Uh, and clearly, at one time, we had a functioning community up until dinner time the night before when everybody got scared of uh, invaders that somebody told them existed and fled. I mean, it, it's it's almost the whole uh, invention of lying scenario. Uh, they don't they don't know what a lie is. So they take everything that Lethe, Letha says at face value. And uh, it, it costs them their indefinite articles. So the, <laughs> the the problem is I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, they've been gone for a long while and the food was put there for the trio. But that's not what the episode says at all. 
everything the trio is saying is making it sound exactly like what your interpretation is, is they ran. What happened here? There was some sort of danger and they're trying to figure out what the danger is that happened that actually there was a danger, but it wasn't real. It was the invaders. But in my mind, I'm like, it just feels like they've this, this is for their benefit, but then no. And if this is the case, if they fled because they heard about a danger, doesn't this disprove Asgard's working theory that you need to be strong in order to survive? (laughs) Are these guys actually the failures? If so, he has had nothing but failure after failure after failure. And in fact, we don't see a uh, a race of Klingons. We fight because we are fighters and we fight uh, because we are strong because we fight and are fighters. But maybe it's just proving his point. They are weak. They are weak and they ran. And that's not going to go over well on the planet that we find. Like This is proving his maybe. point. Maybe. I mean... The- <laughs> The only way, and now I'm going to have to add to the canon of the show for this, but the only way I can see a, uh, I can see this kind of experiment being viable at all is if periodically they are bringing in batches of people from mm-hmm. the other domes to the leisure village. Congratulations. You have won an all expenses paid lifetime vacation to leisure village population 1000. Don't have kids. We're going to have to hang somebody. No, that was a different movie. That, yeah. Uh, and wouldn't that have been an awesome episode of the Star Lost? Our population is fixed and there can be no variants. But three people come in, three people must go. Anyway, that's completely beside <laughs> yeah, the point. I mean, and this is what happens is, is the question I want to ask at the end is just what would you do to make it better? We usually end up talking about it before we get there because it's impossible not to talk about it. <laughs> what would I have done? Oh, gosh. I found... Um, so there's a lot of stuff I, I had real problems with. I, I found Devin's arguments to be really weak. Uh, if this guy has had ethical programming, uh, any kind of ethical training at all, I, I don't see this. The only arguments that he offers are uh, emotional and sympathetic and uh, provided by his captors. Look, I bleed. Look, I'm in pain. Uh, Garth's response. You know what? Garth (laughs) just proves Asgard uh, all over. People are selfish. Uh, I'm watching this and I'm like, is this the way this guy behaves all the time? I mean, the this this is kind of consistent with episode one, but... I have never seen a show like this where they have yeah. so absolutely thrown their character into the badness side of things without mind control. He just <laughs> he just jumps in and is like, I he love goes, this. Doesn't he? This is great. I got food. I got this lady. Rachel was never going to marry me for love. I'm just going to, yep. I'm going to stick with this. And I mean, and it's kind of consistent with what I saw in episode one. He was kind of angry and, you know, prone to being impulsive. And I can see that. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I know that that's not the premise of the show. I know that these guys are three best friends. So I know that Garth is, is their, you know, he's their compatriot. And this, he just, he turns on him like that. It is fast. And even at the end. He's still acting out of selfishness. 
Well, you know, I'm going back to Letha. Oh, wait a minute. She lied to me. She's doing all this. Oh, crap. The only ones I have left are Devin and Rachel. I better go back there before, uh, you know, they decide to, to leave without me. And he still had that gun. Why didn't he just walk in there and just, I mean, bang, 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 bang. Okay, Devin, let's go. <laughs> all he had to do is shoot the ray gun. Just because oh, it just right. makes it disappear. It so they have this, this giant kind of gun cannon thing. It's not giant, but it's a, it's a big little gun. It was pretty big. And all he had to do was come in and destroy it. I think it was a harpoon based on the wall that they had Devin chained up against with all, all of those, those yeah. gas marks in it. I think it was a harpoon and I think it was a wildly inaccurate harpoon. So Devin probably would have been okay for the first couple of shots uh, until they, you know, get right. Uh, maybe that's why it's at such <laughs> close range is like, we, we keep missing when we have it back there, but if we have it just seven feet away from him, I, we, we will not miss. We will not miss uh, man. Yeah. Lots of problems. And then what happened to Letha at the end? She just walks away and our, our, and the, very unsatisfying ending. This feels like a first draft that maybe was sent to Ben Bova and he gave some notes, but then it came back and they're like, okay, we're good. Um, Cause <laughs> Ben Bova doesn't know anything about television. We know about right? television. And I do wonder, you know, Shimon Winchelberg is, is wondering, okay, Oh man, I, I, it's, it's in my list of credits, but fortunately no one ever is going to see this. <laughs> One of the things I liked about this is the trio never knows exactly what was going on. And they never meet the villains or villain. I should say they never meet Dr. Asgard. So you have the people from on high looking down and, and manipulating this experiment, but Garth, Rachel and, and Devin never meet the people. No, that's true. We're causing them to have this, this problem. Garth overhears. What's that? Uh, the Asgard, he loves to push buttons. Yes. I couldn't ever figure out what he was doing. <laughs> Making Because the instructions that he gave to Lathe were all verbal. Yep, yep. And all just telling her to do stuff that she's like, okay, I'll do it. Um, okay. But th- that's that's something that, you know, it do- you don't see it very often. When it's done well, it's it's very interesting to have, like, the characters who never, yeah. who never meet, but they still are in conflict and... Um, you know, usually one set of characters, you know, has the upper hand as far as knowledge of, of this conflict. It reminded me of Duel by Steven Spielberg, which is the, the TV movie that he did where Richard Matheson again, <laughs> but uh, where mm-hmm. a guy's driving his car and he's being harassed by a truck. And you don't know who the truck yeah. is, who the truck driver is, why this truck driver is trying to kill him, because it literally is just trying to take him down on these country roads in California. Um, and you only see, we, the viewer only see the, the driver's feet once, you know, and kind of a silhouette another time. It's, it's no secret. Harlan Ellison was a huge fan of the prisoner. Yes. He loved it. Um, this in particular felt a lot like it could have been an episode of the prisoner with the overseers. Yes watching uh watching everything that's going on and sometimes providing uh, commentary on it and manipulating and, everything know, thinking, yes great example i'm thinking okay are these guys the villains for the entire show because that would be fairly awesome and i'm just coming into this and i'm watching i'm watching i'm like 
No, no, this is a one-off. These guys should have been series villains who have just co-opted the entire... I mean, how would I fix it? I would turn these two scientists into series villains who have co-opted this entire ship and are just running experiments on everybody, and they don't care that the ship is going to fly into the sun because they're going to be long dead. Or just have Asgard as a recurring villain who comes back every once in a while is like, I lost because of you, and now I'm going to you know, manipulate this situation to cause you to lose your, your fen- your faith in, in your friends or, or whatever. Sure. Be, but going back to the question to fix things, I would have removed the villagers completely. Just get oh, yeah. rid of the villagers and throw Letha into the mix, into the triangle. So you have this triangle that works. Garth and Devon, at least have a grudging mutual respect and former friendship that now they, they have a, a mission that they're on together. Garth and Rachel have a respect for each other. They never loved each other. They never were going to be a couple that loved each other, but you know, and then Garth and then Devin and Rachel are, are in love or whatever. So you have this tri- triangle, you throw Letha sure. in the mix and she throws everything off balance um, get rid of those villagers though. Uh, there's no need for them. Yeah. Turn it into something yeah. where maybe there is some sort of, um, uh, maybe there is, you know, one or two other people, or there's some sort of creature or something that, that gives a little bit of menace and, and causes the, 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 the noble sacrifice to still be offered for Garth to stand and say, I'm going to stand in the way of the, this danger for my friend, Devin, um, at the end. But, uh, that whole subplot of the, the village just throws in this element that doesn't make it make sense. No, they needed to, they needed to lean into the Eden part of the Eden village. Yes. You know, and if, if Lethe is going to be the serpent in their midst, if she is going to be the oblivion, put, like you said, put her in the middle of the triangle. How does simply having her as a dishonest element in these three people change things. I mean, what is it going, what emotions does that let the other characters explore? All of a sudden, Rachel finds herself jealous every time Devin looks at Letha, you know? Well, and uh, Garth is jealous every time Letha looks at Devin, you know, and, and right. You know, bring Devin already has a woman and Devin, what is, uh, what is his response? Maybe he's, he's either mistrustful of her or protective of her, of her, you know? So every time, you know, or both or both, you know? Yeah. So, well, we're not going to fix this. It's already done. It's been made (laughs) and we've watched (laughs) it. So Winston, we've already talked about the, the wrap up questions we've talked about, except for one. And you've almost kind of answered it, but the, the oh. final wrap-up question is, are you going to continue watching <laughs> The Star Lost? <laughs> yes, I'm going I'm I'm gonna go ahead and, and watch uh most of the episodes, I think. Um I just in fact I just watched Circuit of Death uh tonight. Okay. All right. Uh and and I was I was suitably impressed with the uh, the effects on that. So, well, and we're going to get there soon. But you, oh, the, yeah, that's the next one, isn't it? I'm yeah. sorry. Um, yeah, but there, I mean, your commentaries have been very, very helpful. 
<laughs> I'm willing to skip episode two, but I might go back and watch number three. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I'll uh, I'll I'll watch most of this. Winston, where can people find you online? Where can people find the books that you are are publishing? Oh goodness! Uh, so StarmanSaga.com is where you can find the Starman Saga. That is '60s inspired science fiction. I love these books. I want everyone to read these books. Uh, DianeDetzer.com. Uh, you can find sci-fi that was actually written in the '60s mm-hmm. by Diane Detzer, and this is the first time these have been in print in any publication since they were originally put out in the '60s. And of course, uh, you can follow uh, follow my YouTube channel, Book Talk. Um, you can find the blog for that at readwriterelease.com. And uh, that's where you find the Book Talk blog and uh, some, you know, some links to the, uh, the Book Talk videos where I review videos, some uh, articles on other books that I've done. And we're launching uh, into NaNoWriMo. Uh, going in real mm-hmm. quick. So uh, starting a new article series on building your own novel, how to build your own novel and how to do it for the, uh, the daily writing schedule that is NaNoWriMo. Nice. Very so good. read good books. So that's where uh, my, my novel Ghosts of the Future had its part of its Genesis was NaNoWriMo. Um, Excellent. So the first words in the first chapter were written on the first day of NaNoWriMo and I made the goals, all of the the word goals for the whole month. And I wasn't done with the novel, but I I did actually accomplish NaNoWriMo that that year. And but that you uh, win, congratulations! Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> Ghosts of the Future, my sci-fi novel. BenAvery.com. You can find me there. Um, and yeah, then speaking a book of talk video for it, that is true. Yeah, yeah. There is a book talk video, and but I won't say if Winston liked it or not. So we can. No, I like. We'll it. let that be. Oh, I was gonna let that be mysterious. Uh, no, okay. no. I I say it's the it's the second uh, thing I say after I introduce the the book, whether or not uh, it was good or not. I don't. I don't have time to wait around uh, for a whole video <laughs> to find out whether or not it was good. I want to know right up front. And I figure everybody else does too. Then I'll tell you why. And if you're still interested. Awesome. Yeah. That's why we talk about books and sci-fi. And, and that's why we talk about the Star Wars too. So the other thing we talk about is Star Trek, the animated series. And 50 years ago, October 27th, 1973, the magics of Megas two was released on NBC on Saturday morning. And we will be releasing. And by we, I mean me, uh, my episode about that over at buymeacoffee.com slash up from the ashes. And I am looking into uh, opening up a Patreon account as well for people who want to do that. Instead, it'd be the same idea, same pricing as far as like very low price uh, to very low barrier for you to get into those episodes. But uh, we are continuing the 50 year reviews of that as well. So until next time, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you, Winston for spending time with me and uh, for suffering through some of the technical difficulties that we had. I live with technical difficulties. They surround me. I embrace them. And so I just want to say to everyone who has embraced us so far this long into this episode, (laughs) thank you for walking this journey down the hallways of the metaphorical arc 
ship of your life. Uh, oh my goodness. And as you end up in the metaphorical Eden uh, dome of your life, and as you're dealing with that metaphorical snake in the grass, and as you feel like the metaphorical Asgard and to- Tobar are watching you, I just want to wish you, as I took this metaphor way too long, Godspeed. <laughs>